But yes, we're, we're looking at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 10, page 261, if you're using the church Bibles. <clears throat> we'll read the whole, the whole chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 10, beginning at verse 1, the whole chapter. <clears throat> All right. Beginning at verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think... Because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rahab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in the front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong... For me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together and had a dazer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at their head. And when it was told David... He gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Let's pray.
Lord God, we pray this day as we come to hear your word that you would make us like little children. Lord, keep us low, make us humble, that we might listen. That we might not live in pride, which is a place of blindness. But that we would hear your word speaking to us this morning, encouraging us, confronting us, showing us the truth about this world that you have made and who you are and how you seek us out, Lord, and call us to trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Context is very important. Context is everything that surrounds something and helps us to understand it. Uh, Let's say, as an example, you were an alien species out there in your galaxy looking upon the earth through a telescope and your job was to understand one part of the human body. The chief alien told you, you need to figure out what's up with the hand, okay? What what, What is this thing? Tell us. Now, if you were to ignore the context of the hand, the, the rest of the body, and you were just to focus in on that hand, you would never understand it, would you? You might discern that the primary task of the hand is to grab things or touch things, but you wouldn't understand how it gets to the things that it wants to get to. Uh, you wouldn't understand how it decides which things to grab, for what reason it grabs things, and then ultimately even why the hand exists. You need context to understand all these things. For similar reasons, context is vital for understanding the Bible. And the Bible story that we just read is especially connected to its context. In fact, some commentators refer to it as the bridge. It's sort of a bridge between the golden years, the golden days of David's reign, and the dark days of David's reign. I almost think maybe a cliff would be a better image than a bridge, uh, since the very beginning of 2 Samuel, where, where Saul died, David's star, it's been, it's been rising higher and higher. There have been a few small bumps, but it's been pretty much uphill, In the last couple chapters, he has been consistently shown to us as the ideal king. We saw in chapter 7, he's given all these great promises, and he responds really well to those promises. In chapter 8, those promises are fulfilled. We get this summary of all these great victories that he's going to accomplish throughout his reign. Remember, it's not not really chronological, chapter 8. And then in chapter 9, we saw last week, he shows his, his faithfulness, his compassion when it comes to his domestic policy. He cares for Mephibosheth. And then finally here in chapter 10, he shows loyalty in his foreign policy. And he's victorious in battle once more. He can do no wrong, it seems. Well, the train is about to go off the tracks, and it's going to go right off a cliff But before it does that, this text has to bring us to the top of the mountain. Uh, The narrator is making this drop as dramatic as he can here. 
David will embody the ideal king once more. And what he shows us in chapter 10 is what it looks like to fight faithful battles. David shows us what it looks like to fight faithful battles. But the first thing he does is not actually fight. Uh, in, in fact, he aims for peace. Okay, so that's my first point. Aim for peace. You know, two weeks ago when we were looking at chapter 8, and I showed you the map, you guys remember, remember this, I showed you a map of Israel, uh, and you could see in the map basically every country that surrounded the country of Israel as when David took over, he takes over throughout his reign. He's, he takes over pretty much every country that surrounds Israel. And you may have thought to yourself, man, David is a pretty expansionistic guy. He's just looking for nations to take over, it sort of seems. I mean, does he wake up every spring morning and think, which country should I go uh, take over this year? Well, this chapter, I think, sort of corrects our understanding of his foreign policy, at least in the case of Ammon and Syria. He doesn't start a fight with them here. Uh, he actually appears more interested in building friendships initially. Now, remember, again, this chapter is chronologically earlier than some of the victories that we saw in chapter 8. Okay, that's important to remember. Um, he hasn't met, for instance, Syria in battle yet, which we saw in chapter 8, but that hasn't happened yet. And this shows us the beginning of his relationship with Syria. Okay, so as this text opens then, chapter 10, David has no plans at all to invade Ammon uh, and, and Syria, the king uh, Hadadezer, the kingdom of Zobah. Those guys, they might not have even been on his radar at that point. He's aiming for peace. Now, with the Ammonites transitioning to a new king, of course, that would be an ideal time for David to attack, but that's not on his mind. What's on his mind is hesed. You remember that Hebrew word from last week, hesed? Here, it's translated loyalty. You'll see it twice there in verse 2. Uh, he says that he's going to show loyalty to uh, Hanan, this son of uh, Nahash. And back in, in the last chapter, in chapter 9, we saw that David showed Hesed to Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth. Why? Because of his covenant with Jonathan. Here, David seems to have had some sort of relationship with Nahash, um, Hanan's uh, father. He, Nahash was an enemy of Saul's, so it's possible that when Saul was chasing him around the country back in David's young days, when things weren't going so well, uh, it's likely at that point sometime Nahash helped David and gave him support. Uh, maybe they even had some sort of covenant or alliance. That's a possibility given the fact that he uses the word hesed, which is covenantal language. So, now, David wants to pay back some of the kindness of Nahash to his son, Hanan. But David's kindness is not well received. Hanan is a young king with bad advisors. That's always a toxic mix in the Bible. And so his advisors sow distrust in his mind, and he takes things to a whole new level. In verse 4, he shaves off half the beards of David's servants, and he cuts off their garments at the hips. Now, 
In the ancient Near East, hospitality was the golden rule. So this was not just bad behavior. This was horrendous behavior. Uh, Just speaking about the beard, the beard was a powerful symbol of male strength. In Israel, men were not allowed to shave their beards. They were only allowed to trim them, except in certain rare circumstances of extreme mourning. They were not to shave their beards. A very important symbol. One dictionary I read uh, said beards were so significant in that culture that to attack the beard was to attack the man. If you're one of those beard guys, this will probably stick in your head. To attack the beard is to attack the man. So Hanan defaces their manliness by cutting off half their beards, and then he, of course, exposes their manliness by cutting off their clothes at the waist. This is symbolic demasculization. It's shameful. It's horrendous. And, you know, it's worse because these guys represent David. They're his representatives, so... His attack on them is an attack on David, the king of Israel. This would be viewed as a declaration of war. Even so, David does not immediately attack the Ammonites. He's been horrendously shamed, and in verse 6 we're told this made the Ammonites a stench, a stink to David. But still, it's not till they go ahead and hire this big army from Syria that he decides it's time to attack. David's actions here are intended to show us what is morally good. He embodies what is morally valuable. In our contexts, too, we should aim for peace. We should show loyalty and kindness, and not only to relative insiders like Mephibosheth, but to outsiders like Hanan. I'm reminded of Paul's words in Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, 15, he says, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. The Ammonites, um, you should understand, were not really very popular in Israel. In fact, during the reign of Saul, They actually surrounded one town and threatened to gouge out the eyes of every inhabitant of that town. They wouldn't have had a good reputation in Israel. So David's example here really is surprising. It demonstrates that God's people should always be willing to look for opportunities to build bridges, to heal divides, to begin friendships. That should be our go-to orientation towards others, no matter who they are, even when there's some bad history there. Sometimes this attitude will not be reciprocated. You may get rejected and insulted like David's messengers here. You can't be too self-important or too insecure if you're going to be a peacemaker. You need to simultaneously not think of yourself as very important, while also being secure in your identity as a child of God. But, you know, we don't just learn this kind of behavior from David. We learn it from God, too. This whole interaction between David and Hanan here, it actually reminds me of a parable that Jesus told in Mark 12. 
I'm sure you remember this parable. It's about a vineyard owner. He owns this vineyard. He rents it out to a bunch of farmers, and he heads off to a foreign land. Uh, And while he's away, eventually he sends his servants to these farmers for his due, what they owe him in terms of a percentage of their uh, profits from the farm. But they treat his servants shamefully and send them away. He sends more servants and more servants. Some of the servants they kill, some of them they beat and they cast out. Finally, the owner decides to send his son, thinking, well, surely they will respect my son. But when his son comes, the farmers think to themselves, oh, if we kill this guy, then we'll get the vineyard when the owner dies. And so they kill the son, and they cast him out. Jesus, when he's telling this parable, then asks the listeners, what do you think this owner of the vineyard is going to do to these farmers? And, of course, everyone responds, well, he's going to come and destroy them and, and look for new farmers that will do a better job. There's a similar pattern in our text that we see here in this parable. Uh, the, the master in the parable who represents God, he extends loyalty to these farmers, but is insulted and rejected, just like David here, extends loyalty to Hanan and is insulted and rejected. God, of course, gives peace uh, even more of a chance than David does. He tries again and again to get through to these farmers, but they make themselves an utter stench to him until finally he brings certain destruction upon them. We see the same pattern with David and the Ammonites, and we see this pattern throughout Scripture, don't we? God offers a chance for reconciliation again and again and again throughout the history of the world, over and over in the Bible. First, he offers it to the people of Israel, although, of course, we we see hints of an expansion of that offer. Even here, we see it through David's example with offering loyalty to the Ammonites. And then in the New Testament, of course, God offers this reconciliation to all nations. He sends his servants out into the world with an offer of Hesed love. And many of them have been treated shamefully and killed. And it should be our expectation that we will, tr- we will face shameful treatment as well for the sake of our king. And yet still our God reaches out to the Ammonites of the world. And some of them will come to him just like you and me. In fact, while Hanan here rejects David, it's interesting that later on in David's story, one of Hanan's brothers, Shobi his name is, will actually become friends with David and, and offer him aid in a time of need. So what we're seeing is that the core values of God's kingdom are also seen here in David's kingdom, and they should be part of how we live our lives as well. But sometimes we do have to fight battles. So let's turn to my second point, initiate when necessary. Okay, so my second point, initiate when necessary. David doesn't start this battle, but notice verse 7. When he heard of it, okay, when David heard of it, this is referring to him hearing about Ammon hiring this Syrian army. 
So when David hears about that, what does he do? He takes the initiative. He sends Joab right away with his standing army, which is called the Mighty Men, uh, deep into Ammonite territory. Probably, we're not told the exact city, but probably the, the capital city of Rabbah. David, he doesn't just take up a defensive position on his border. He goes on the offensive. And this is not an isolated case. This is a pattern that we see throughout our text, okay? So, uh, in verses 15 to 19, when the Syrians see that their mercenary troops have been defeated, I guess they're offended. I don't know exactly, but they decide, we're not going to let this happen. They pull together the biggest army they can possibly get together. They're pulling guys from north of the Euphrates River, which is pretty far, and they march down south to Helam. Again, what does David do? He pulls together his own army, he marches off across the Jordan, and he attacks the Syrians in their own territory. Again, he boldly takes the initiative. Now, of course, sometimes we have to play defense, either because strategically it's the best option or because we're surprised by something and we don't have a choice. But David's example shows us if you can see a problem out there, don't sit around and wait for it to show up to break down the doors and be in your house among your family. If you can see a problem in your marriage, don't wait to get help until all love is crushed and you despise each other. Take initiative. Go out there and fight the battle that needs to be fought. Now, I could make so many qualifications right now when I start talking about fighting and battles. I'm not trying to convince you guys to oh, go out from this sermon and start fights with each other. That would make for an interesting fellowship time after church. So please remember my first point, right? Aim for peace first. And it's also probably true that we tend to start fights in areas where we should really forgive and forget or agree to disagree. And we tend to avoid battles that we really should be taking initiative in. Deciding when initiation is necessary, that takes a great wisdom and good counsel. Poor counsel leads to disaster. We can see that here with Hannon. He's got poor counsel and it does not go well. If you're starting a battle without first getting Wise counsel, that's probably not a safe place to be. And a second qualification I should make is that I'm using the word fight very loosely here. I'm thinking of the many places in our lives where we may need to stand up for something or pursue something that is important. I don't mean by fight that you necessarily need to hit someone over the head with an idea or an object you should have a positive, fruitful goal in mind, and it should not simply be about you. Sometimes we fight with consistent love. Sometimes we fight with patience. And yet, to fight, you do need to take a stand somewhere, right? You need to take up your position on something, and often that takes words to define. Maybe it's as simple as, this matters to God, and thus it matters to me. One more qualification. 
Remember who sets the priorities on which battles should be fought. The king does. So be very careful that the battles you choose are battles that your king would endorse. Here in this text, David is the king. Jesus is our king. And and further, while what is true and beautiful and pure and faithful and just, these are kingdom values, things that we ought to fight for, what is the kingdom priority? The kingdom priority is people, souls. So, yes, engage culturally, engage politically, engage with your family, But keep what is most important, most important. Making disciples. Extending the surprising Hesed love to the world. That is the battle with the most immediate eternal significance that you can be involved in. So once we've initiated these battles that must be fought, What do we do next? This is the most important part of fighting faithful battles. We trust God. Okay, that's my third point. We trust God. Now, the reason I say this is the most important point is I think the text actually shows us that this is the priority here. Okay, so I'm going to show you two ways that... Two specific verses are highlighted for us. I want you to follow along with me on this, okay? First, we're looking at verses 11 and 12. First, these verses where Joab speaks are structurally highlighted, okay? Let me explain. Uh, Verses 1 to 5, the beginning of the text, are sort of an introduction. They tell us how we got into this whole situation, okay? Verses 1 to 5, that's where David is interacting with Hannon. And there we have three, three situations of someone talking. After that, there's no dialogue except verses 11 to 12. That's the only dialogue we have after that beginning introduction section. And we always need to notice when a text transitions from description to dialogue. It's always significant. Pay attention to those things, okay? So that's highlighted. But also notice how short and clipped the description of these battles is, okay? It's, it's not, we're not, this is not a very gripping account, it's sort of, you know, these guys went here, they set up here, uh, this many men went, the other guys fled. You know, and then, you know, they got a bunch of more guys together, they went here, these guys came, they came, then these guys died. And, I mean, it's, it's really not, there's not a lot of gripping account in most of this narrative that we have here. And so, when we get to verses 11 to 12, and all of a sudden everything slows down, and the writer zooms in on this one little speech. Of all the speeches he probably happened in these big battles, uh, he zooms in on these one little speech. I mean, these are big, these were probably some of the biggest battles of the ancient world, especially this second one with the Syrians. That would have been a very large battle. There's just not a lot of description, okay? So we're seeing structurally highlighted for us verses 11 to 12. Second way these words are highlighted, they come from a very surprising source. As readers, if we're reading through the story of David, if we, if we did that before we came to this sermon today, we would recognize he's not 
a righteous source of information at this point. Most of us probably don't even like Joab that much. I mean, we recognize he's an effective military leader, but other than that, you know, we're reading along, uh, you know, we're saying, ooh, oh, look, some dialogue. And we read it, and we're thinking, oh, that's pretty good stuff, actually. Uh, But then we say, wait, who said that? Joab? You mean that bloody guy who murdered Abner? pulled him aside and shoved a dagger in his belly, who really only ever seems to care about himself. Yeah, he was a good general for David, but we don't expect him to say things like this. So on the one hand, of course, this is a reminder that there's always more depth to people than we think. Joab is not as one-dimensional as we might have thought. But on the other hand, this shouts at us. Look, if Joab is saying something that looks righteous, you're going to want to pay attention. This is a surprising source. It's a literary technique that we're seeing here. It colors this text yellow for us. So what does Joab say? Well, first he outlines their strategy. We've got to have each other's backs. If I need help, you help. If you need help, I'll help you, right? This is good advice. We can get behind this. We need to listen to this. We need people who have our back when we fight our battles. And then he says, be of good courage. Be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. That seems pretty good too, right? That sounds like what a military commander would tell his soldiers to get them to fight. He's giving them motivation. Um, It's not a selfish motivation, right? He says, fight for our people. Fight for the honor of our God, for the cities of our God. But then he says, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. This is not what a military commander like Joab is supposed to say to his troops on the eve of battle. He's supposed to say something like, If you do that, if you fight courageously, we will certainly win. We'll crush those guys, right? That's what would fire up his brother and the surrounding soldiers. But he doesn't say it. He doesn't promise victory. It's not his promise. He says, we leave the outcome to God. Why? Because he will do what seems good to him. If you can follow Joab down this path, this is where your faith grows. Can you follow this bloody military general down this humble path? Or do you think you know what is good and thus you know what should happen? It's not that Joab doesn't work hard to try to win the battle, right? He does his best. He sets up his men in a pretty strategic fashion. He tells them to fight courageously. He gives it his best shot. And then God knows what's really best, what's really good for us. So may what he wants to happen, happen. You know, I don't know, maybe Joab was just sort of blindly repeating, you know, pious religious sentiments. Maybe he didn't believe this himself. We don't know, but I'll tell you what I do know. The Lord wanted you 
to hear this. By the power of his spirit, he caused it to be recorded here and in such a way that it jumps off the page at us in multiple ways. And he caused it to be read today in this room to you. You bleed, you fight, you plead, you give your all for what is right in this world for people you love, for the work of your hands, for the souls of this world, and then you leave the outcome to God. He determines the fruit of your labor. He determines whether you win the battle. You will win the war, right? We know that. We've got promise after promise in Scripture to tell us that. But the battle? Here is what we say about the battle. Be of good courage. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. I'd like to prove to you that this is a good strategy. Let me suggest, Joab's words here actually remind us of Jesus. Jesus was sent by God to show covenant love to the world, and he was shamefully exposed on the cross by those he sought to befriend, just like David's servants were shamefully exposed. But what did he say to the Lord in the garden of Gethsemane? He asked the Lord for another way. He knew the pain that his future held far better than we know what our future holds. Yet he also surrendered to the Lord's will, knowing without a shadow of the doubt that the Lord does what is good. Jesus himself entrusted his life, like Joab here, to the Lord's goodness. And you know what? For a moment, it looked like his battle was lost. But then we learned that the war was won. And from the most unjust and wicked action ever came the greatest good ever. Redemption. Salvation. The serpent's head was crushed. A way to God was restored. When battles look lost and you struggle to trust God's goodness, you must remember the cross. It is the greatest proof that God could give you that even when in the midst of great evil, God does what is good. In this text, we see embodied for us the importance of aiming for peace by extending God's love to the world. We see the need to initiate battles when necessary. And we see the absolute priority of trusting God. Let's pray. Lord, we do seek to trust you today. We do ask in humility that you would help us to say with Joab, 
a man we wouldn't expect to say things along with, that we, Lord, will be of good courage and we will believe that you will do what seems good to you. This is difficult. We need strength to do it. We need to see the cross. We need to see a Savior, Lord, who trusted in these very things himself. And he would know better than us that you are worthy of trust. And he trusted. So, Lord, help us to, um, to aim for peace out of a desire to honor you and what you value. Help us, Lord, to initiate those battles that need to be initiated. Give us wisdom. Help us to seek good counsel in these times in our life. And Lord, may we trust you. May we trust you every day. In Jesus' name, amen.